you have a Bible, I invite you to open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. Before we get there, hear the words from Psalm chapter 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hears their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. We've been going through uh, the book of Acts in chapters 9, the end of 9, chapter 10, 11, and 12, uh, offer to us what could be called the Acts of Peter. So if the whole book is the Acts of the Apostles, here in this section is called the Acts of Peter. We've already looked at the double healing where we looked at Aeneas and uh, Tabitha, both being healed. Uh, We looked at the conversion story of Cornelius, really for two weeks, uh, over chapters 10 and 11. And now today we look at this, uh, this escape story that's uh, laid out for us in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we're going to see uh, oppression coming to the church, uh, bad things happening to good people. And we might be um, uh, reminded of, of the reality that sometimes it looks like the, the wicked are, uh, are prospering. And the righteous are perishing. And uh, we're reminded of another psalm. In Psalm chapter 73, there was a guy named Asaph who thought the same thing. He looked around and he thought that the, the wicked seemed to be doing just fine. And it seems like the righteous people, those people who are following Jesus, they're the ones who are, who are having all the problems. But the, the chapter goes on. And then in verse 16, Asaph says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now, what Asaph was saying is that he was looking at life this way, horizontally. And he was saying, this doesn't look like how it's supposed to look. But then he went to the sanctuary of God, which means he looked at it from God's perspective. He said, okay, uh, now I understand. Now I'm reminded of the reality. The end of this is that God does judge. The end is that the the wicked will not prosper forever, that judgment is in fact coming. And as we hear this story this morning, this story that's an escape story, we're going to find that as much as there's uh, much to rejoice in the escape, we're also going to find something pretty heartbreaking as well. So look at it with me in chapter 12, verse 1. And about that time, King Herod, Herod the king, uh, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Uh, about that time um, is referring back to chapter 11 in verse 24 when many were being added to the church. So what we understand is this, is as the gospel um, advances, that brings about opposition. We've already seen this in the book already, and we see it again here. Chapter 11, good things are happening, and what follows good things is oppression. What follows good things is persecution, opposition to what God is doing. You might remember back in chapter 9, when Paul was sent off, or Saul was sent off, it says that there was a time of peace, that the church had a time of peace. Well, that time is over, friend. Persecution has come. It first came through, through Saul. Well, more, more recently, it came through Saul in chapter 9. And now it comes here through Herod. 
Saul's persecution was this religious, misplaced religious zeal. He thought he was right. He thought he was doing right by God. But here, Herod, Herod's motivation is, is altogether different. Uh, Herod's motivation is personal praise. He, he wants to be liked and he wants people to praise him. He wants to, to have the applause of men. We're going to see that in just a few moments. But that name, Herod, you probably have heard that name a time or two. And in the Bible, uh, there's, there's a number of Herods mentioned. And they're not all talking about the same person. Uh, the Herod that, that we find here uh, is Herod Agrippa. That's uh, his name. And uh, all the Herods are, are, are related. But, but um, another commonality, other than the relation, is their violence. They, they had a reputation of violence. You might remember another Herod. Uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the killing of the children in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Herod Agrippa, this Herod here, was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. And later in the book of Acts, we find another Herod. This guy's called Agrippa, Agrippa II, or what, Matt, what Luke says in chapter 25, verse 13, Agrippa the king. This was the, the son, um, um, this was the son of this Herod that we read about here. The, the point is, is that Herod's, the Herods had a reputation of violence. And here in Acts 12 is no difference. Uh, Luke gives a swift account of this violence that we learn um, as good things are happening, Herod, Herod does some things. He arrests uh, several from the church and he has James killed with the sword, which probably means that he was beheaded. Um, James became the first apostle to be martyred. We know that Stephen was the first Christian. James was the first apostle. And this is James, the brother of John, versus James, the brother of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. One, one uh, scholar says this, to kill someone with the sword, as opposed to having them stoned as Stephen had been, strongly indicates that Herod saw, or wanted people to think he saw, the Christian movement as a political threat. That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. Herod would have known about Jesus. He would have known about the message. He would have known about uh, Jesus being called the Messiah. And that would have been a threat. If, if, you, if you want to be king, then anybody else who's claiming any sort of, of that is, is a rival to you. Right? They're, they're rivaling your kingdom, your, uh, your authority, your so-called so deity. And uh, this is still happening today, this deifying of men. In places like even just recently in Japan, uh, recently uh, they enthroned a, a, a new emperor, who claims some measure of, of, of deity as he ascends the throne in, in Japan, right? This, this is still happening. There's still these men who think that they are, are, are deity. They think that they can become God. Well, as we read this story, we're going to find how that, that story ends and how it will end for every, every man who claims such, um, such a thing. However, um, it was not, uh, so as much as it, it was a perceived threat, and it wasn't actually a threat, right? I mean, Peter actually didn't have any political power. The church didn't have any political power. Uh, so the, the, the actual power was um, only perceived. In fact, um, Jesus, same, same thing, right? He was considered a threat, yet there was no actual power in, in the political sense uh, that would rival the authorities 
at the time. But Herod wanted to be liked. And in verse 3, we, saw, we see that it's, he saw that it pleased the Jews that he killed James. So what Herod is doing here, he's playing to the Jews and to the Romans. Oh, you like that? Oh, okay. Oh, we'll start with James, who's kind of a lesser, uh, less outspoken guy. Uh, we'll kill him. They like that. All right, let's, let's go after the, the, the more outspoken guy. Let's go to the top of the, the food chain, right? Let's go to Peter. And so he rests Peter, the more visible of the apostles at the time. Um, but Matthew chapter 20, if you just kind of track back into the Gospels with me for a second, you don't have to go there. But um, here, the mother of James and John has a conversation with Jesus, and she's asking for her sons to sit at the right and the left hand of the throne in the kingdom. You might remember that. And Jesus responds this way. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? And they said, we are. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. Suffering would come. Jesus was saying that to, to James and, and John. Suffering is coming. You, you want it? You want it? <laughs> well, buckle up because it's coming anyways, whether you want it or not. It's coming. You will drink of that cup. And here we see it. Here we see it. James is martyred. And then in a little bit, years later, we find out that, that John, John would escape martyrdom, but he wouldn't escape persecution. Uh, John was was exiled to an island. He was imprisoned in Rome. According to church history, uh, it's believed that he was cast into a, a, a pot or a cauldron of boiling oil that didn't kill him. And so he did not escape. Uh, he did not escape the cup. He did not escape the, the suffering. What Jesus was saying is there's no glory apart from suffering. You want to sit at the right hand or left hand? You want, you want glory? You want, you want reward? That does not come without a measure of suffering. So now on to Peter, verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was the days, during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. One writer says, the evil one always loved to attack those in leadership. Right? And this is still true today. Herod uh, arrested and imprisoned Peter, and he went to pretty great lengths to secure him. Right? Uh, this, this idea of the four squads of soldiers, that'd be four soldiers per squad. So we're going to see that two are chained and two are at the door. Right? So there's, there's a squad of four, and there's four squads that, that rotate uh, the, the security of Peter. That seems kind of like an overkill for one preacher, right, you would think. Uh, however, I, I don't have any lock-picking skills, so I don't think that anyone's going to need to do that for me. But here, here's, here's, what, here's what we know. In chapter 5, Peter escaped from prison. Right? So, so it's not like this guy hadn't done this before. They, they've seen this story. So they've watched that movie. Right? So, so here, here it is, and they're taking measures. This is like max security for, for a preacher. right? And so they don't want him to escape. Uh, Luke also mentions here the timing of this event was during the, the days of unleavened bread. And then in, later in chapter or verse 4, he talks about the Passover. Now, the Passover was a time of remembering God's deliverance of his people. Do you remember that, that story back in the book of, 
of Exodus. Uh, During this time, the unleavened bread, Passover, all that, no trials, uh, no carrying out of sentencing could be done. So there there was a kind of a, a halt on all of that. So when it says that after that, Herod was going to bring him out, uh, presumably then to have him executed to the same fate that James, uh, James had. Uh, but then we read verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. One commentator says this so helpfully. When Herod attacked with the sword, the church countered with prayer. Isn't that beautiful? Very uh, counterintuitive in our culture. But next, we're going to see God's intervention here um, for Peter. Peter is rescued. Look at it in verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centurions before the door were guarding the prison. Okay, now. If, if anything jumps out to you, it, it not only is the security, but it, it might be that Peter is sleeping. <laughs> right? Right? You are in prison. You are chained to two guards. Um, your brother has just been beheaded. Uh, certainly, your, your fate seems likely that that's what's going to happen to you the next day. And he is sleeping. Now, some of you can sleep through anything. Somebody can sleep through the sound of my voice. I can't believe it. <laughs> right? But the, this guy, this guy is chained and in a prison, certainly not a great condition, and he's sleeping. This, me- this signals to us a measure of peace, doesn't it? A measure of rest. But, but how could he ever have rest? How could you have rest at a time like this? How could you have rest when, when your life is on the line? When, when you know the end could be coming, inevitably, it, it would seem, humanly speaking, well, there could be two explanations. One is, we said this already, but this isn't his first rodeo. He's been in prison before, right? He, he's had a great escape before. And so there's, there's a measure of like, here we go again. See what the Lord's going to do this time. I, I don't know. But there's a measure of experience that this one's different. He's alone. It was after victory, not after you know, having someone murdered that he got put into uh, prison. So it was a different experience, yet it wasn't his first time. But, but more than the experience, verse 5 tells us what was happening. The church was praying. The church was praying. And it says earnestly. Some of your Bibles might say fervently or unremittingly. They kept on praying. This is the same way that Jesus' prayer in the garden is described. Fervently. That's the kind of prayer that the church was praying for Peter. And they were praying all night, we're going to find out. Right? How could you have peace? Well, prayer brings peace. That's what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us. Do not be anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Warren Wearsby tells us this, that God, uh, God's promises are remind, we are reminded of God's promises in prayer. It's in prayer where, where we rehearse who God is and what he has said and who he said we were. And for Peter, there's a personal promise that Jesus gave him. If you remember in the Gospels, at the end of the book of John, Jesus and John have a conversation. Um, and, and Peter says, um, 
or John says, what, what about, you know, whoever? And one of the things that, that Jesus says about Peter is that Peter's going to live to an old age. Don't worry about that. He's going to live, he, he, he is going to have a promise that, that brings upon, brings out confidence. Let's go to verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Uh, a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him and did not know what was being done by the angel. What He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision, verse 10. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out, uh, went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Man, it's amazing. That's an amazing story, right? Max security. And here comes the angel. Here comes the angel who, who God sends and he frees Peter. Once again, we see an angel involved. This is not the first time in the book of Acts where, where angels get involved. Psalm chapter 34, verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. It was true then, it's true now. Um, we, don't, we don't see angels, right? And, and we don't want to overemphasize this, but the reality is that the God is still at work. The spiritual world is real. Uh, there are times where we entertain angels unaware. That's what Hebrews talks about. Verse 11, and Peter came to himself and said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting, namely his death, right? So Peter was rescued. He was delivered. Remember we said, remember so what Passover was? The deliverance of God's people? <laughs> Here we see another kind of deliverance that Peter experienced. And he's free, and so what does he do? Well, he goes to the safest place he knows, right? Look at it in verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, uh, John Mark, where, um, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he had knocked at the door of the, the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. <laughs> but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. Uh, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17, by, but motioning to them with his hands to be silent. He described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And they said, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So Peter gets out. He goes to the, to, to the place, the safest place he knows, the church, right? That's a good sign. And he comes and he finds the church praying. This is nighttime. This is in the night. And they are busy praying fervently, earnestly praying for him. Uh, Thomas Watson says this, that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Uh, the account of Rhoda here, though, is kind of humorous, isn't it? It's, it's kind of a, a corny story, and uh, it highlights um, something uh, about the people. Um, can, can you imagine that story? Can you imagine that scenario? This little girl goes to knock, get the door. It's knocking. She's answering by herself, apparently. 
um, which presumably you would expect that there could have been some fear about someone knocking at your door in the middle of the night and the little girl goes to answer. I'm not sure. Maybe everyone's in prayer, right? So, so she goes to the door, but she hears Peter and she comes back and says, it's Peter. And they say, you're crazy. She's like, no, no, really Peter. And their response is, it's an angel. Like, I'm not sure why that's not more alarming than Peter himself. <laughs> right? Like, what, what would make you believe more that it's an angel than it was Peter? I'm not quite sure. Now, there's some different understandings of what they me meant by angel, but none of them would make it any less um, strange uh, than Peter himself being there. Uh, but um, what we're seeing here is a measure of doubt. They had enough faith to pray, but it seems as though they didn't have enough faith to believe that their prayer would actually be answered. And that is not to slight the people. That's to say, I can identify with that. <laughs> uh, raise of hands, right? Like, we, we, we know what that feels like. We, we know what it feels like to say, man, I know I should pray, but man, can God really answer this prayer? Could God really answer that prayer? Could God really answer the prayer to free Peter from a max security prison? Well, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray earnestly for him. I'm serious about the prayer, but I'm not sure that he could actually answer or actually answer in that amount of time. But they go to the door. We see that it's Peter. And in verse 16, it says that they, note the plural, Rhoda went by herself. Now they opened the door and they saw him and were amazed. Now this lack of faith isn't to demean these Christians. It's to say, uh, maybe we could all take some encouragement from, uh, from people who struggle. Uh, maybe we all could be encouraged from the words of the man in Mark 9, who says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> right? Right? We'd see that kind of playing itself out here. And so he comes in, he tells them to be quiet. I mean, they're probably pretty happy, right? You would be pretty happy too if that kind of prayer was answered. But it's the middle of the night and probably people shouting and screaming probably isn't a great idea for, some, for a fugitive who's on the run, right? So he tells them to be quiet and he tells them what had happened and he gives all credit to God. The Lord brought me out. The Lord did this, right? And that's true then, it's true now. God does the work, we respond. You read that story back and it's God doing the work and Peter responding to what the angel told him to do. Listen, that's you and me, man. <laughs> We're, we're, we're responding to what God has already done. Why do you believe? Why do you have faith? Because God has already moved in your heart. You're responding in obedience and faith. Why do you follow God's word at all? Because the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you to do so. You, you, we're, we're not any better. It's, it's God's work in us and we're responding to it. Peter shows us what that looks, what it looks like. Peter then tells them to, to tell, tell James and tell the other leaders what had happened. Tell, tell them, I'm free. This is great. Tell them. And he says, tell James. Now, this was obviously a different James. This wasn't the James that would just beheaded. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, who, who it clearly is now a leader in the church uh, at, um, at Jerusalem. And so he tells them to do that. And then Luke ends with, and he departed and went to another place. And that's basically the last we hear of Peter, but for a, a, you know, a reference or two. And he goes to another place. And it's not that he left in cowardice. He left in wisdom, right? He's trying to be murdered. So he leaves. And he, we know that he continues to do ministry. We just don't know where exactly he went. Some would like to hypothesize about that. But we don't know. Luke does not tell us. What we do know is the church continued to go forward. The church continued to grow. And Peter continued to do ministry. Now, whereas Peter's story is over here, the story is not over. 
We look at it in verse 18. There's, there's a bit of a fallout, as you would expect. Verse 18, now, uh, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Surprise, <laughs> he gone, right? They can't find him, verse, verse 19. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he explained, or he examined the centurions and ordered them that they should be put to death. So somebody's got to pay for this, right? Somebody got to, has to be held responsible for it. So it's the centurions. Now, according to Roman law, this is what would happen. We're going to see this again in chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison. And the, the jailer is going to kill himself because he knows if these, if, these, uh, if these prisoners are gone, I'm dead. So I'm just going to kill myself now. And so that's Roman law. But Herod's not under Roman law, but he does it anyways, which further, furthers the reputation of violence. And then we find that Herod leaves. He, he takes off to Caesarea. And Luke continues, though, in the next uh, five verses. And whereas Peter had escaped King Herod, King Herod would not escape the king. Right? He's, he's not getting away with this. And we continue to read in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, came to, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's um, chamberlain. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the, the king's food, king's country for food. So these people are coming, Tyre and Sidon, and they're coming to make nice with Herod. They want to get on Herod's good side. They want to get food. They, they need the resource. And so they want to make nice with him. They convince or persuade or maybe, maybe even bribe, blast us to, to get a meeting, get a, get a face-to-face uh, with Herod so that they can make their case. Verse 21, and on the, an appointed day, Herod put on his robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Uh, Josephus, historian Josephus notes that the robes uh, were, were silver, and they sparkled in the sun, right? This is furthering this, this deification of, of Herod. And in response to this oration, uh, the people flatter Herod, of which, of course, he loves and he readily accepts. Look at it in verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, right? What, what, a, what, a, what a statement, right? If anyone would ever believe that of themselves, they're, they're, they're foolish. But the flattery is, is, is music to Herod's, Ears. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God or give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. In chapter 10, Peter goes to Cornelius. And when Peter shows up, Cornelius bows down and starts worshiping Peter. Remember this story. And Peter's response is, get up. I'm just a man. You don't worship me. Quite a different response here. These people, the voice of a God, and Herod doesn't say nothing. Yeah, let me hear it. Let me hear it. And immediately, God responds. Here in verse 23, we see God would respond to Herod's idolatry. And he would do it immediately by striking him. Now, one doctor observed that, that intestinal worms can form a ball that causes acute intestinal obstruction. That ultimately, he would die. A church historian says that it actually took five days for him to die. So you can see that this is a, a slow and painful, potentially, um, judgment. Uh, God intervened here. God intervened for Peter by delivering him. He intervened for, by the church by eliminate, eliminating and overcoming this opposition called Herod. Listen, God is not mocked. 
God is not mocked. He opposes the proud. There is only one God, and there's only one who deserves worship. Isaiah says it this way, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Or again in Isaiah, for my sake, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory. His plan will not be stopped. No one can rival this God. The world may bring opposition. It may bring difficulty. But we know that God is building his church and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. Not Herod, not Saul, not our government. No one can stand against what God is doing. And we may face opposition. You may face opposition in the coming years, in our country, more than ever, it looks like there is opposition coming to naming the name of Jesus. That is as real as it may have ever been for our country. And yet the answer to this persecution, the answer to this pressure is not paranoia. It's not retreat. It's not fear. It's not politics. It's not a political leader. What did the church do? They prayed. That's the weapon. That's the weapon of our warfare. That's at the end of the armor of God. The, the last thing that, that after he lists the armor, what Paul says, it says, and always praying, praying always. You want to endure what might lie ahead for you? Prayer is the key. And the early church shows us this example of faith in the midst of persecution. When Herod went to war with his hands, the church went to war on their knees. We know God does not always immediately strike down idolatry. We look around the world and we say, man, there's a lot going on that seems a little worse than what Herod was doing. And God doesn't seem to be acting yet. Nobody will. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Judgment will come. One of the... One of the responsibilities of the Christian is to communicate that judgment is coming. But God has provided a way. God has provided deliverance through his son, Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ as your savior, if you have not given glory to God, if you are not worshiping the one true God, then your fate is as bad as Herod's. It might not be worms, but it will be death. It will be separation from God. It will be judgments in a place called hell or the lake of fire. This place that is torturous, this place that is separated from God for all of eternity. But God has provided a way, his glory alone. One commentator helpfully points out this chapter, if you remember, the chapter opens, James is dead. Peter's in prison, and Herod is triumphing. And if you were to stop there and say, oh man, what, what's going on? What's going on with the world? This is terrible. What, what's the world coming to? But as we fast forward to the end of this very chapter, we find out that Herod is dead, Peter is free, and verse 24 tells us that the word of God is triumphing. Look at it in verse 24. And the word of God increased and multiplied. We look at the snapshot of verse 1 and we say, what in the world? I'm, I'm, 
I'm scared. What, what's going to happen? We read a few verses later, and God's plan is it stopped. Throughout the book of Acts, there's these moments where Luke takes opportunity to, to give like this progress report of what's actually happening. And he's, he's showing that, that nothing is being stopped. Nothing's being stopped. Even now, friend, when you look around the world, you look at the threats to religious freedom, or you look at these countries who are closed countries, right? the gospel is still moving. The gospel has no boundaries. God is on the move. The Spirit is active. The Word of God will stand forever, Isaiah chapter 40. Some years later, like 20 years later, uh, Peter would write his first epistle. And in it, he would quote from Psalm chapter 34, the verses that we read earlier. And you can look at it in 1 Peter 3, verse 12, or you can look at it here. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's a great summary of chapter 12, isn't it? His eyes, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He sees. He is sovereign. He sees the persecution. He sees the injustice. He sees the suffering. Yes, James was beheaded and Peter was rescued. And we're not quite sure how to make sense of that other than to say what they said in chapter 4 when they prayed, and the apostles prayed in chapter 4, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. God, you're the one who knows all this stuff. You're the one who's sovereign over this. I don't always understand. And quite frankly, know this. You won't always understand. And that's okay because what we do know is that God knows. His ways are inscrutable, that they're beyond our knowledge. He works all things together for good. That doesn't mean he says those things are good. He says he works them for good. And just because, Timothy Keller says it this way, just because you can't imagine or see a good reason why God would allow something bad to happen, it doesn't mean that there can't be one. That's a helpful word. Because sometimes we look around the world and say, I don't understand how this could be furthering the gospel in any way. How could God allow, fill in the blank, and we all got something to fill in the blank, don't we? How could it be? But just because we can't see it doesn't mean there isn't one. How limited is our perspective? The second part of that verse, his ears are open to their prayer. As the church prayed, God heard their prayer. Brother, sister, God hears your prayer too. Why? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the great, the great high priest, the mediator between God and man. The reason you can pray is because Jesus has gone before you. Prayer is not our last resort. It is our only resort. One, one writer says, prayer is an act of holy defiance against the opposition. And finally, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God acts. God sees, God hears, and God acts. God judges. God judges. Verse chapter 12 serves as a warning to us of, of self-exaltation. With that story of Herod, woe to you and me, whoever would receive the praise of man and not redirect that to the Lord. Self-exaltation ruins everything. And again, one of our commentators, Tony Morita, says this, we must humble ourselves before God. We must not try to be God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today as we look at this scripture, as we look at what you did here through the church, through Peter, through this great rescue, as you delivered, sovereignly delivered him, 
as you heard from your church through their prayers, and as you acted in justice. God, we rejoice to know that those things are true. Those things are true today, that you hear, that you see, and that you act. To you alone be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen.